Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a question of ethics. I've apologized to Canadians. I take responsibility for what uh, was in the Ethics Commissioner's report. Are politicians ignoring ethics rules too often? What is the cost to the public trust? Coming up, we will speak to Mario Dion, this country's Ethics Commissioner, as he prepares to leave office. Also... We're very eager to receive the final report, take whatever lessons that we can from it. Awaiting the Rouleau report, the Public Order Emergency Commission submits its report tomorrow. We'll speak to our strategists for some early reaction. And... And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. A former Trump ally is now running against her former boss, but does Nikki Haley have what it takes to sway Republican voters? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sarabio. Mario Dion will soon wrap up his tenure as this country's ethics commissioner, announcing earlier this week that he will be retiring after next Monday. Mr. Dion has spent the last five years investigating dozens of MPs, some cabinet ministers, even the prime minister for violating the rules. And while most Canadians have only seen or heard about Mr. Dion's rulings, it is his concern for the public trust and how politicians are eroding it that is causing a stir in Parliament today. Mr. Speaker, Liberals would love to fool you into thinking that all that spending actually went to Canadians, but in fact, they were stopping and helping their friends and insiders all along the way. This Liberal law-breaking means that while Canadians are struggling, Liberal insiders have never had it so good. While 20% of Canadians are skipping meals, the Trade Minister gave a $23,000 contract to her best friend. While the rent on a typical apartment has soared to over $2,000 a month, the Housing Minister gave $93,000 to his staff's family's PR. Firm. After eight years of breaking ethics laws, are there any Liberals who will hold their political masters to account or is helping their friends and insiders why they got into politics in the first place? Well, with more, we are now joined by Mario Dion, the outgoing ethics commissioner. Mr. Dion, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. You know, admittedly, it feels strange to describe you as the outgoing commissioner. Is that difficult for you to hear? No, it's not me. Really, you know, I've, I've been there five years and uh, I've had a long career, 43 years altogether. So it's not uh, as difficult as it may sound. I'm, I am retiring for health reasons and uh, I basically had no choice. I, so I'm, I'm happy about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, we are wishing you well in, in the, the days and the years ahead. But, you know, I, I'm also wondering about how you are feeling right now about your office obviously an important role but from what i read today you also seem a bit frustrated that ethics is perhaps not taken more seriously by politicians is that fair to say no i saw my role uh, throughout throughout the period i saw my role as uh, giving life to the conflict of interest act and uh, after five years i'm a bit disappointed that we're still at the stage where uh, we do not uh, reach uh, the, the people who are governed by the Conflict of Interest Act uh, as much as uh, we, we, we wished. Uh, we, uh, I think it's important that they understand very well what uh, the Act requires of them. And we are organizing sessions. We still have a very low participation rate. And we still have people who make mistakes unnecessarily because they were not aware 
uh, I have a distinct feeling. So that's the that's my frustration, basically, that uh, we cannot do more quickly uh, to uh, to ensure full compliance with the act at all times by everybody. That's my dream. That was my dream. It still is. Well, you, you know, as, as you say that, what's what's I guess. Uh... Uh, difficult to understand is the fact that the act is not new. It, it's what, 17 years old already? That's right. It was passed in 2006. Uh, and uh, it's not new at all, but we have successive generations of people who, uh, who are governed by the act. It's ministers, it's parliamentary secretaries, it's also ministerial staff and governor and council appointees. So we've had several uh, turn, turnover as well within this group since uh, the, in the last 17 years. So we we'll always have new recruits who need to be sensitized and uh, trained uh, about their obligations under the Act. Mm -hmm. well, well, certainly during your time as Ethics Commissioner, you, you have uh, done a number of investigations. You have found a number of ministers in violation of ethics laws. Uh, Bill Morneau, Dominic Leblanc, Mary Ng, uh, Greg Fergus, even the Prime Minister. What effect do you think these violations have on the public trust? I think each each time something like this happens, that we find that uh, a minister, a uh, a, a well-known public figure, has uh, contravened the act. I think it uh, it continues to diminish the confidence of the public in uh, public officials. So that's why uh, when we launch an investigation. We, uh, <clears throat> I always secretly hope that uh, there was no violation, and, but my role is to do a objective analysis, review of the facts, uh, an interview with the, the person involved and uh, other witnesses as well, come to a conclusion. But each time we find a violation, we, 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 we reaffirm the fact that it's still happening 17 years after the act has been passed. Mm -hmm. Well, and certainly part of part of the, I guess, conundrum is the fact that even if a minister is found to uh, violate the act, uh, there there seems to be no consequence because no one has been demoted as a result of it. What do you make of that? In my last five years, that's right. No one has been uh, demoted or or has uh, suffered any adverse consequences, as far as I can tell, because I uh, I haven't seen any evidence of adverse consequences. Um, it's the prime minister's choice, basically. The way the, uh, the, the, way the act was crafted, uh, it basically, my role is to uh, come to a conclusion and share that conclusion with the prime minister. And then the prime minister does what he thinks is appropriate in light of the situation. So uh, to my knowledge, no one has suffered any uh, reprimand or any sanction as a result of having contravened the act. Mm -hmm. But it's a choice made by the prime minister. Do you think the act needs to be revisited, perhaps even rewritten as a result? I uh, I don't really have. A, I think it's still 17 years is uh, long, but in institutional terms, it's not that long. And I think uh, if we uh, if the government implements my recommendation, that we would have a much greater degree of uh, success in making sure it does not happen as often as it has in the past. Mm -hmm. So I would not jump to the conclusion that something else is required because you know it always takes years to. Uh, to develop something else, to implement something else, and each time you lose precious time in making sure that the key objective, which is to make sure that people are able to identify potential conflict of interest and avoid conflicts of interest, that's the goal. 
the act is a tool to reach that goal. And I think we have not fully exploited the value of education in making sure that they, they meet the goal. Well, you say education, and uh, Mary Ng, the international trade minister, as you know, she appeared before a committee last week. She was answering questions about her decision to award a contract to a friend, and she said that uh, additional ethics training to staff would be more helpful. Uh, do you agree with that statement? I do, of course. And in fact, we're, we're having a session with Minister Ng and her staff next month. Not we, but they are having, because I'm leaving, as you know, next week. Uh, so there will be a session. But the violation was so elementary, you know, awarding a contract or two contracts to a friend is so elementary that I fail to see how education would have prevented it. Mm -hmm. Well, we're now in a moment where MPs and Canadians are questioning the billions of dollars being awarded to outside contractors and consultants. Uh, does that worry you in any way, just the, the numbers that are now being signed and the, the, the value amount attached? Uh, frankly, Michael, this is not part of my role. I don't even have a uh, personal opinion. Consultants have always been used. I think the level has increased. Uh, but I don't have an informed opinion to share with you, nor is it my role to have one in this subject matter. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Dion, I want to thank you for your service to all Canadians, and thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Well, Mr. Dion's comments is just one of the topics we'll be discussing with our strategists this week. Susan Smith is principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group. Larissa Waller is principal with GT & Company. And Kivash Najafi is a former NDP strategist. Thank you, uh, all three of you, for joining us tonight. Having us, Michael. Susan, I'll begin with you. Uh, you know, with what we heard from Mr. Dion, th this frustration because he doesn't believe the government ha has taken ethic rules seriously enough. Uh, given the number of ministers who have been investigated by his office, uh, how are members of government reacting to the report that came out this morning? Well, what struck me about Mr. Dion's comments uh, yesterday. Uh, and, and this week is that he feels that there should be additional training that his office should be giving to people. So that's quite significant from the fact that um, maybe the message isn't getting through. I think MPs, I don't think there's a single MP or parliamentarian who wakes up and goes to work thinking they're going to break the ethics rules. I think by the, uh, and I think things have been done in error, it's clear, and the, and the commissioner has reported as such. But when he's saying he thinks that there's more training that needs to be had, well, then there's obviously some confusion that exists there. What he also, um, what also gets overlooked a little bit are the hundreds and hundreds of calls that do come into his office for people seeking clarification on things. I mean, they don't report on the, on the stuff where people are following the rules. They just report on if there's been some issues. So clearly there could be more training if his office can put that into place i think that's a, that's a good thing that has to happen and i don't think anybody will resist that uh, larissa what's your take on it because you know uh, it's not just government ministers who've been investigated and found to have violated ethics rules uh, mp's from all parties have also been looked into uh, what do you think needs to change what's your read of this issue you know i don't disagree with you that every party has its challenges I would submit that this government and the Liberal Party stands out as having, you know, serious issues around ethics and 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 um, ethics violations. I can't I can't think of a government that's had sort of this sort of awful track track record about it, um, and it seems always to be these sorts of these sorts of stories of friends of friends. It's not necessarily the MPP or the MP 
uh, benefiting or the minister benefiting, it's their friends benefiting. And I think that that's the piece that really sort of leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Um, but let me take off my partisan hat for a second. And I think you're right that things need to change. Um, to Susan's point, there are people you can call to ask questions, is this okay? I used to be a political staff. When I wasn't sure, I'd call um, our integrity commissioner. And I would say, here's the situation, what should I do? It covers you and it also gives you a path forward to get out of a, a, a sticky situation. I also think we need to look at who runs for these sorts of jobs. Um, an MP, you know, it's it's not a glamorous job. It's not, you know, the public thinks that there are these awesome jobs that give you wild influence, you're paid very well. You know, the, the pay is fair, but you give up your whole life and you give up time away from your family. You know, if you're an MPP or sorry, an MP from British Columbia and you're traveling to Ottawa all the time, that's a really tough job. Um, so I think we need to look at who's running for these jobs. How do we attract the right people? What are, their, what are their backgrounds? How are they getting nominated? And really, and, and honestly, even compensation and, and, and work-life balance, and so that we have the right people running for the job. Um, but also, again, as, as, uh, as Susan mentioned, that there are checks and balances and more training that can be done to uh, make sure everything's on the up and up. Now, Kavash, you know, listening to Mr. Dion, he's concerned that ignoring ethics rules only undermines the uh, public's, uh, public trust in politicians and really respect for Parliament at the end of the day. What do you say to, to the concern or at least the frustration that Mr. Dion has been expressing? He's not wrong about that. If you think about it, uh, you know, the, the life of every government, uh, every federal government recently has been, you know, the, the cycle has come to an end at around 10 year point with a series of scandals. For Chrétien Martin years, it was the Gomery uh, and the sponsorship scandal. For Harper years, it was the uh, Senate spending scandals. And for uh, the Trudeau government as well, like there's been these uh, lapses of judgment that, that are building up uh, to a trend that uh, Mr. Dion is talking about. And it's really, you know, it, it's unfortunate because you would hope that it, when people engage in elections, they're not just thinking about, you know, replacing one set of people that they've lost confidence in with another set of people that they're going to lose confidence in. Hopefully, we our, our elections are more about debating uh, bold visions for how to make our country a better place to live in. Uh, so, so I I agree with him that it is a concern, and it, it's a particular particular concern now that we are seeing signs of erosion of public confidence in public institutions all over the place. Um, and it's really incumbent on politicians from all sides, uh, but especially from those who are in positions of power, like ministers and the prime minister and the prime minister's office, to really crack down on any um, any lapse of uh, ethics, because uh, over time it has an impact not just on the life of that government and that party, but on the general health of our democracy. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep, uh, of course, following this story as uh, it, as issues come about. Uh, Mr. Dion, as we noted, he'll be retiring as of Monday, so it's no longer going to be his uh, concern. Uh, I do want to talk about, though, the Rouleau inquiry, because the final report we now know is going to be handed in tomorrow. Uh, this is the public inquiry that looked at the the Emergencies Act, whether or not it was justified on the part of the government. You know, Susan, I'll, I'll get you to start us off here. Uh, are government members worried at this point about what this report will say? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. It's uh, important for everybody to remember that this, this commission with Justice Rouleau had to happen. It's part of the legislation. So when the Emergencies Act is invoked, there must be a commission of inquiry after it. That's what happened. And let's remember this city 
just over a year ago was occupied uh, by some pretty nefarious folks who we weren't sure what was going on. Um, there was a, an underlying threat of violence. People couldn't leave their homes comfortably. There was a great deal of disruption here, also at the border where billions of dollars worth of trade was being disrupted, and in Coots, Alberta, where they uncovered um, uh, a plot to kill people. Uh, so the inquiry has taken its course. There was the prime minister went before the inquiry, other ministers, other members of government, the police went before the, the inquiry. So Justice Rulo will rule. If there were mistakes made, that will be noted by the judge. But I do believe that the government and the public felt, most of the public felt that the government acted within the best interest for the safety and security of Canadians in invoking the Emergencies Act. And we'll see what Justice Rouleau says. Yeah, well, and to your point there, Susan, Nanos did release a poll uh, back in December, and this was after the commission finished its uh, public hearings. And according to Nanos, at least at the time, 66% of Canadians supported the use of the Emergencies Act uh, to end the protest mm -hmm. and the occupation. So, Larissa, given that polling number, and again, the, the the commission is meant to determine whether or not it was uh, correct or whether or not the bar was met for the Trudeau government to invoke the act. Does it matter what they conclude, though, given that the majority of Canadians seem to be very sympathetic to its invocation? So I thought really a lot about that poll when it came out and how the question was asked. And it was did, did something like, did you support the use of the Emergencies Act and the occupation? I think you could have asked, did you support, literally insert anything here, to end the occupation, and most people would have said yes. That doesn't mean they needed to do it. Um, but I am glad that Canada has these checks and balances that an inquiry is is required uh, when there is the use of the Emergencies Act, which is supposed to be used when nothing else can work. I don't know if that bar was met. Uh, and frankly, the justice won't know if that bar was met because Minister Lametti refuses to hand over the secret information or secret advice he got um, that prompted the use of the Emergencies Act. Um, I think, you know, uh, the Justice has also said that he's sort of working on dual mandates here. He's obliged by the law to in investigate um, why the government used the Emergencies Act and if they did so properly. Uh, he's also been told by the government through an order in council to investigate the flip side, the, the truckers. I think both are fair to investigate. Um, I hope and uh, I believe that the justice will probably issue a report that elegantly lets people move forward. I assume that there will be some cautionary notes for the government. Um, I su assume that it'll probably be really hard also on the occupiers and both are fair. Um, I think that the public wants to move forward. I think that the, the occupation and, and what led to it and the divisiveness around COVID and you know, what prompted all that anger um, has been really hurtful for the for the whole country. And I hope that, you know, if this report can help us move forward, I, I think that's generally a good thing. Kavash, what do you think? Because, you know, to, to Larissa's point, I think many Canadians just want to move forward. And here we are after weeks of testimony at the end of last year. Uh, are Canadians even paying attention anymore? Does it matter what the conclusion will be? I think whatever the conclusion is, people who agree with it are validated and everybody else will move on. Uh, it's not, it, I, I don't think there's a huge political gain uh, in this report. I mean, we'll see uh, in case it says anything particularly radical. Uh, but I do hope that our institutions are paying close attention to it. Um, you know, as somebody who lived in Ottawa and experienced the occupation in my neighborhood, uh, from my perspective, it could have been resolved if the police had done their job correctly. 
But what we've learned throughout the occupation and follow up to that was that the police were not um, accessing correct intelligence. In fact, they were getting their intelligence from sources that were more sympathetic uh, to the occupiers than to the residents. Uh, we have come to realize that uh, it, that there was a lot of leaks from the police to the uh, to the occupiers. Uh, and just generally speaking, our, our um, emergency services and our public security uh, systems uh, seem to have this nefarious connection with uh, extreme right and domestic terrorists. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, I would add to it politically the fact that uh, Mr. Polyev embraces this population and has brought some of the worst elements of these, uh, this movement into the Conservative Party, giving them a mainstream platform, is also a, a great concern for me uh, and for the future of our democracy. And I really hope that this report opens the door to addressing some of those questions. Okay. Uh, Larissa, very quickly, because uh, we're running out of time there, a quick response to that last point from Kivash. I think that, you know, Pierre Polliver he really was trying to show that he was listening to the anger that brought them there because the people the occupiers who obviously broke the law and were you know on the wrong side of the law and were hurting people in ottawa they represented hundreds of thousands of people who weren't there who were very angry very hurt very scared and were treated really poorly by this government and treated like their concerns didn't matter they were ridiculed they were told that they were wrong that's not okay. true Okay, That's Susan, very quickly. quickly Pierre Polyev marched with the truckers. He was totally supportive of them. He didn't distance himself from them. He marched with other supporters after the fact. The folks that were there with their jerry cans, and you just showed tons and tons of footage of those jerry cans that were literally outside our office door and probably in Kiev, close to Kievash's neighborhood, were trying to break the law. They were threatening the government. And Mr. Polyev stood with them. Candace Bergen stood with them in her mega hat. Other members of the Conservative Caucus stood with them. Uh, it would be good to move on from this. There's no one who would like to move on faster from this than Pierre Polyev because that footage of him exists. So that's something he's going to have to distance himself from continuously over time. Okay. Uh, as I said, <laughs> out of time. So we'll revisit this after the report is actually tabled. But uh, for now, Susan, Larissa, Givash, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Nikki Haley is a former governor of South Carolina. She's also a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and a former Trump ally. But now Nikki Haley is poised to take on her former boss, announcing her campaign in the hopes of securing the Republican nomination for 2024. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Well, with more on Nikki Haley's announcement, we're now joined by award-winning journalist David Leventhal. He joins us in D.C. Dave, now the editor-in-chief of the investigative news website, Ross Story. Although, uh, so busy, he's joining us from his car today. <laughs> Dave, nice to see you. I will give you my best dashboard confessional, Michael. Okay, sounds good. Really, I just want to talk about Nikki Haley. But <laughs> listen, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, that she said that she would not run for the Republican nomination if... Donald Trump, her former, former boss, uh, was going to throw his hat in the ring. 
what changed? Did someone not tell her that Donald Trump is running? Yeah, well, politics changed. And as to uh, her not knowing that Donald Trump was running, it seems like her and maybe about a dozen other Republicans uh, are kind of in the same boat of like, oh, yeah, Donald Trump, he's running, too. Not stopping them one bit. And Nikki Haley clearly sees that this is an opportunity for her with a weakened Donald Trump, where Republicans are curious about other potential candidates who could represent the Republican Party in 2024. And there's no guarantee that uh, Donald Trump at all is going to be the nominee at this juncture right now. Well, let me pick up on that point then. You know, what kind of hold does Donald Trump have on the Republican Party anymore? So Donald Trump still has a very strong hold on the Republican Party. Donald Trump is the former president. And if you were to be an odds maker at this point, you would still probably put money on him winning the nomination. But uh, he is in, in a much weakened, weaker state than he has really ever been since the 2016 election when he was competing against many other Republican candidates and ultimately defeated him. So this is a huge opportunity for others who would love to increase their profile at minimum and, and at maximum win the Republican nomination outright. Nikki Haley is one of them, but you can add Ron DeSantis and Senator Tim Scott and several others to the list who we can expect over the next many weeks are are going to strongly consider, if not uh, outrightly, get into the race. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned DeSantis, and, and, and oftentimes he is the name held up as the serious alternative to Donald Trump. So obviously Nikki Haley sees a, a path to victory here. What is her possible path? A possible path? Well, first of all, uh, you know, you, you can't win if you don't play. So she's been out of the political arena for a little bit right now. But somebody who definitely can make the case that, hey, I am a woman. I am uh, a woman of color. I am younger. I am all the things that Donald Trump is not. And if the Republican Party wants to appeal to a broader base while still staying true to conservative principles, I am the person to carry that banner into the future. Expect that that is going to be a major part of her appeal uh, to conservatives, to Republicans, and uh, in, in something that is going to differentiate her very much from Donald Trump. Okay, conservatives, Republicans, what about Democrats? Does she appeal to soft Democrats? So she doesn't need to at this point uh, because of the protracted way that we choose presidents in the United States, there's going to be a Republican primary process. It's literally gonna go state by state and in essence have lots of mini contests on the way to the parties, both the Republican and the Democratic Party, nominating their candidates. So Nikki Haley's first and, and foremost, uh, uh, Nikki Haley's first and foremost goal here is going to be to to appeal to those Republicans to the question of whether she would appeal to Democrats or independents or or people in a general election scenario, perhaps more than Donald Trump. Uh, she might have some crossover appeal. But again, that's not something that she has to quite concern herself with at this juncture. Okay, so we'll watch the Republican field uh, very closely. Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, now the, the first two to declare that they are going to run officially. But you know, I mentioned Democrats there. And I do want to also talk about Joe Biden, because there are Democrats who question if he should run for reelection. What's being said about that in DC right now? Joe Biden's poll numbers are not great. There are a lot of Democrats who are very concerned about him running for re-election in 2024. He's 80 years old. He would be 86 when he ended a second term. But 
All indications are that Joe Biden is going to run for re-election. He has telegraphed as much. It is not guaranteed. He hasn't formally stated that he is and filed paperwork, but at least at this point in time, uh, it would be surprising if he stepped away. And there is no heir apparent, save for maybe Kamala Harris, the vice president, who also, too, has her own popularity issues. So the Democrats do have uh, their, their own kind of quandary in a way, and Joe Biden is going to have to do a lot more to, in essence, uh, continue to appeal to the electorate, uh, the electorate, both within his own party and to a general electorate uh, so that he could win not only the nomination, but also the general election against whoever the Republican nominee is ultimately going to be next year. Well, we are watching very closely from this side of the border, Dave. Always good to speak with you. Thank you for that. That is David Leventhal. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Always nice to speak to Dave, even if it's in his car. Uh, that is our program for this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching and join us tomorrow as we take a deeper dive into the Rouleau report that will be submitted to Parliament tomorrow.